This is the full interview from a segment from the Overdrive radio and podcast program. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au. Well, a person who's said to have a fruity voice or laugh is one with a deep and strong voice in a very pleasant way. Well, Will Hagen has been broadcasting on motoring and motor racing for more than half a century, and he certainly has a distinctive and indeed fruity voice. He uh, remembers the past, and uh, this is an opportunity to reflect a little bit way back in the 60s. He joins us on the line now. G'day, Will. Hello, David. Your first broadcast, I believe, was in January 1965. Is that correct? It is indeed, yes. I'd, <laughs> I'd been following motorsport for quite some while. My father, stepfather was in the, the motor trade as a car salesman. He was working with a guy who was an A-grade scrambles rider, uh, which today we'd call motocross. Um, and they were involved selling, before he got onto BMC cars and minis and things, involved in selling German Goliaths, which were interesting. They were front-wheel drive. They were a two-stroke fuel-injection twin-cylinder. And they were very economical because the original ones were only 700 cc's. So Lance Lowe, the motorcycle rider guy, um, was able to do very well in economy runs with them. And between that and Sydney Speedway and so on, and, and the guys that my stepfather knew, I sort of went along to a lot of motor racing, including the very first Warwick Farm meeting. So I was following all of that closely. I'd got out of school, didn't know what I wanted to do exactly, but was sort of interested in broadcasting. And the short of it was that um, I started uh, at Catalina Park on the Australia Day weekend, 1965. Um, Later got a chance, later that year, got a chance at Warwick Farm and blow me down in the very same year. I'm working as a clerk at Qantas out at Mascot. And uh, I get a phone call from Jeff Healy of Channel 7 saying, would you like to help us with our Bathurst telecast? And I mean, to a, to a young guy, <laughs> you sort of leap down the phone, you know. And uh, I never knew whether it was psychosomatic or not, um, but I had a, a really crook voice over that weekend. I was, uh, every t- after I finished talking every time, I was having to, to take stuff to clear my throat and so on, which I never had again, as I say. It was probably just a sore throat. But um, I was doing it with a guy called Billy the Ziff Reynolds. He had a very neat beard. Bill Reynolds, who was a a midget speed car driver, but he'd also driven Austin Healy's and things at Bathurst. And he was nervous as hell. And he had to write out his entire introduction to the thing. And anyway, we did all of that and... uh, sort of went away and I thought, oh yeah, you know, I could have, I would have liked to have been better if we'd done this or that or whatever. And, uh, but you know, didn't have any input really to the, to the telecast. You just sort of went away. And then the next year I got an invitation to say, are you with us again? And to which I said, yes, but would you mind paying me for last year, please? (laughs) (laughs) And, And so, um, my, as I say, my, by that stage, my stepfather was selling minis. He'd, in fact, when the mini first came to Australia, he was selling them. He'd been at Lark Hoskins in William Street. He was then in P&R Williams in Wentworth Avenue. And I was involved with the Alvis Car Club, which is an interesting brand of English car. 
Um, in the mid-1930s, you'd be interested in this, David, not only had they in the late 1920s done a front-wheel drive car, and unrelated to it being front-wheel drive, but a guy called Alec Isagonis had worked with Alvis in the 1920s. But by the mid-1930s, or later in the 1930s, the Alvis Speed 20 and 20 and, 20 and 25 had an all-synchromesh four-speed gearbox, so synchromesh on first gear, a thing that Holden hadn't, didn't hear about for about another 45 years. So um, it was all pretty interesting stuff, and, uh, uh, yeah, I just it went on from there with the motor racing, but I was really interested in the way that the Minis went in 65, got beaten by the, uh, the Ford Special Vehicles thing, really, GT500 Cortina, and then by um, uh, the next year, uh, Minis really got into their own. But even in that first year, and I remember actually, David, at a Warwick Farm meeting in earlier 65, so before they ran the Harry Firth developed GT500 Cortinas with dual fuel tanks and uh, a more stressed engine and so on, at a Warwick Farm meeting in a 10-lap sprint race there, one of them blew up to the extent that the shrapnel from the engine came out not only through the inner guard, but through the outer guard as well. And you could see it. <laughs> the, the metal peeled apart. You know, it must have been doing phenomenal revs when the engine blew because it just shattered. And they threw a cover over this thing as quickly as they could. But by the end of the year, well, by October of that year, they'd sorted that problem. And uh, Barry Bow-Seaton... Uh, took one to victory at Bathurst, but um, and in fact there was a second. They were second as well. But if you look then, Minis were sort of or the Cooper S's. We should say Cooper S because there were all sorts of other Minis that weren't that quick around Bathurst. But they were in that year '65. They were third, fourth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth. Paddy Hopkirk competed that year, but with Timo Mackinnon, whom he wasn't with the next year. Um, in fact, Timo, down at Forrest's elbow, um, down the end of the S's off Skyline and before they come out onto Conrad Strait, he got inside another vehicle. The vehicle clipped him. He went up onto his side and to his roof. He got out of the car, pushed it back on its wheels, got back in and did the lap. And the pit crew said, you're about 12 seconds slow on that lap. What happened? He said, I rolled the car. <laughs> And Bob Holden, that year, was ninth with a guy called Greg Cusack for the Kalara Motor Garage. Now, Greg Cusack turned out to be one of our very good single-seater race drivers. And Harry Firth, who developed the Cortina GT500, was in a Cortina 220 against the car he developed. But uh, So um, it was really interesting, those early days at Bathurst. Uh, there were 40 finishes in that year, 65. 18 uh, non-finishes, so a field of 58 started. And that led on to 66, the Gallagher 500, where the Cooper S's absolutely dominated and Bob Holden went on to victory. 1965, with people like Hopkirk and that, it was the beginning of a sort of internationalism, was it, for the Bathurst race? We'd seen many local Australians do well. Uh, now it was getting more world-renowned. It was, and one of the, the interesting things was that by the next year, 
a Datsun 1300 was driven by an all-Japanese crewed driver and co-driver, you know. So, um, yes, it was getting that sort of reputation uh, from car companies. I mean, blow me down. For Ford to develop a car to comply with the regulations, they had to sell to make and sell 250 of these cars. So they had to find victims, you know, <laughs> a car that was essentially made to win at Bathurst. It wasn't a particularly gentle, smooth uh, driving car for the road, but uh, quite a sporty sort of a car, uh, whereas the Cooper S was um, very much a usable car in every sense. And, of course, you'd remember too, David, <laughs> was it a fun, sporty vehicle. Um, it was a police patrol car, for goodness sake. Now, imagine, imagine today... For the cost of one of these things and the size of it, 10 feet long, saying to these big wallopers, this is going to be your home for the next 10 hours while you go chasing cars. Now, if you remember, the Minty's packet used to have little cartoons on the front. It's moments like these you need Minty's. I think one of them yes. was a big burly policeman in a mini giving a left-hand signal by putting his hand all the way across the car and out the left window. <laughs> how lovely, how lovely. There were other lovely things that weren't related to the Cooper S but were related to the mini, and uh, one of them was help stamp out big dogs because there was a dog lifting its leg against the side of a mini. <laughs> oh. I mean, but this was the, the warmth that came to the car, David. And I mean, when you when you look at it, and you know, you've been around the industry a long time on the inside of the industry. You look at the things that they did, which you, today you'd say were wrong. It had external seams. It had, in the British one, a little bit of wire string covered with a bit of plastic that you pulled to open the door. You know, it didn't even have a proper door handle. The Australian one had a sort of a door handle, which you couldn't reach with your right hand. You had to reach across your chest, chest with your left arm to get to the door handle to open the door. It had sliding windows, you know, um, all sorts of cheap things that made it so practical. Um, you know, the boot lid folded down and then the number plate was hinged to go down from there along with its illuminating light so that you could put something on the boot lid and transport it around because of the, the very limited space available in the vehicle. But, you know, theoretically, they took 10, uh, sorry, they took uh, four people, you know. And I an think on occasions, people. Will, they took a lot more. I did some talkback <laughs> yeah, one, right. one time where someone said they used to put their eight, eight members of the family in it, sitting on laps and sitting on the handbrake and, and so on. It was... They say, too, that the massively wide door pockets and the space under the rear seat, and I think it was something like you could store two dozen bottles, or full-size bottles of beer in there. But they say, too, that that was made for a particular bottle, a particular brand of, I think it was scotch, that uh, Alecky Sigonis liked and made sure that uh, his uh, mini-designed car could <laughs> accommodate his favourite bottle of grog. He was also a smoker, and I think they had ashtrays in the back. That's right. Yes. Yeah, they did. <laughs> well, I mean, in a sense, everybody was, or well, a lot of people were smokers, weren't they? Yes. You know, but, um, yeah, I mean, as I say, such an odd thing that came out as an economy car, 
with 10-inch wheels, for goodness sake, mm. that uh, would do in the basic form of the 850cc car originally, 848ccs, um, would do 72 miles an hour, which in those days was quick. You know, a lot of cars were struggling to do 65. And you had these tiny wheels, um, front-wheel drive, transverse engine. Again, you'd know better than I that to change a fan belt in a Mini was uh, <laughs> was was risking losing your hands, wasn't it, you know? It was tightly packed in, wasn't it? That was that was its great design, but it made for servicing. When it went on to the Austin 1800, which again was using one of those iron block BMC engines, it was the A-series engine in the Mini, that in fact, Sir Leonard Lord, head of the BMC group at the time, apparently said to his Sagonis, you can do anything you like with this car. And he'd had success with the Morris Minor before it. You can do anything you like, but you've got to use the A-series engine. Imagine if it had come out with a good modern-type engine, you know, overhead cam and or alloy block or something like that. And the same thing happened with the Austin 1800. There was this B-series 1.8-litre engine that was actually heavier than the the V8 4.4-litre engine in the P76. And in the Austin 1800... I'm told if none of the bolts and things were rusty, it took eight hours to do a clutch, to change a clutch plate. When the Australian version of the Austin 1800 came out, the Tasman Kimberley, with an inline six-cylinder transverse engine, single overhead cam, and they improved the accessibility because from the windscreen forward and the rear windscreen back, it was an extended vehicle of the Austin 1800, but between the windscreen, the A-pillar and the C-pillar, it was an Austin 1800. But to do a clutch in the Australian-developed car was an hour and a quarter. <laughs> so we had some good people here, David. Again, as you'd know, from all that you've done with traffic and safety and everything, we don't, we don't take enough pride, do we, in what we achieve and the way we solve problems in this country? And I think I, the notion of solving a problem, of not being caught up in just fundamentalism of what everyone's done in the past, but thinking through and being inventive with it, I think needs to, to be applied today. Absolutely. And, you know, whether it's a black box uh, in aircraft design or um, yes. a Wi-Fi, all sorts of things have come out of Australia and we barely realise it, you know. Very few people sort of understand that sometimes we've done world-breaking stuff in this country. Mm. And, uh, I mean, again, this race, it was a unique race. Uh, it started at Phillip Island in 1960. Four production cars. It had to be cars as sold to the public. The, the classes were defined by price, not by engine size. And originally, and I loved this, originally... In the first three races run at Phillip Island, the wheel changing had to be done with the standard equipment sold with the car. <laughs> Can you imagine the jack and the wheel brace sold with these cars? Scissor jacks and things. Yeah, yeah. And stuff, you know, the car falling off the jack and all and the jack braking and all sorts of stuff, you know. You mentioned the Japanese coming out. It was really a case to not only talk about outright speed or winning, but reliability. Very much. 
a great movement in the industry that reliability became that it was well made, not that it was just momentarily fast. Absolutely, and it was what it was about. I mean, it was what it was about originally when it was sponsored by Armstrong. They sold shock absorbers, dampers, Mm. and they wanted to prove that these were good, you know, and uh, that's why it it was called that. And now I might say by the third year at Phillip Island, 1962, it was lucky they were selling dampers because the track was breaking up fearfully. <laughs> and not only the dampers were getting punished, but so were the wheels and tyres. <laughs> and that's why it moved to Bathurst, of course. Yeah. Um, they'd done the three races there. They didn't have the, the money to improve the circuit at Phillip Island. And so um, a guy called Barry Gurdon, who was racing, had been racing a supercharged Austin A90 at Mount Panorama. And in fact, if you go up the back road, to the top of the mountain, um, away from the circuit, and the circuit obviously is a public road that takes you to the top of the mountain, but closed at, at race meeting time, you go up the back road and it's Gurdon Drive from the guy that helped bring the race to Mount Panorama and in 1963. But before that, there's a race that was forgotten pretty much in 1962. I didn't see any of the Phillip Island three races, but I did see the 62 race at Bathurst where the ARDC was, had recognised what was going on down at Phillip Island and it was, was working. And it, as you say, it was showing the range of cars that was available to the public, uh, which ones were quick, which were reliable, and all the rest of it. And they ran a race for sports cars and uh, sedans at Mount Panorama in 62. And it was won by the Gagan brothers in a Daimler SP250. Oh. which had, as you remember, Mm-mm. a fiberglass body. But, um, David, it, it, it had a nice flex to it, such that when they went round the corners, um, often a door came open. <laughs> but, but it won the race. <laughs> the ACT police had those as a vehicle for a little while. Right. Well, they were reasonably quick, actually, and again... Probably, I don't remember their price, but probably not madly expensive, you know. But, um, I mean, when you come to the race in 66, um, there were in Class A, and imagine these prices, it was for cars up to $1,800, Datsun 1300, Fiat 850, 1.2-litre Ford Cortina, Morris Mini Deluxe and Morris 850, and there are five different models there. Then we went on seven models in the next class that took us to $2,040. One and a half litre Ford Cortina, a Hillman Minx, a Suzu Ballette, Morris Cooper, not an S, a Cooper, a thousand cc's. Prince Skyline, now there was a good, an interesting car. Six cylinder in line, three d- twin choke Weber carburetors on that car and a five speed gearbox. Very quick. Renault R8, Toyota Corona, then Class C had three different models, um, dominated very much by Cooper S, went up to $2,700, Cooper S, but included $1,500, imagine this, racing a Toyota Crown around a tight circuit against a Mini Cooper. (laughs) And then... There was the the top class in which there were at least five models eligible, up to $4,000 maximum, featured Chrysler Valiant, 
Holden HD X2 Studebaker Lark Triumph 2000 Volvo 122S. So think about this, David. There are at least 23 different models uh, from eight different brands of which Morris, Hillman, Isuzu Ballette, Prince Skyline, Studebaker, Triumph, Chrysler Valiant, Holden have all gone, and Datsun too, but of course it's become Nissan in, uh, in more recent times. But a a again, David, and this is the interesting thing, today in supercars, uh, you know, with its 24 semi-professional drivers, really, and we, we don't see anybody else really coming in except a few co-drivers later in the year. But in those days, we had Fred Gibson, who later won the race, but he also, and th these were in one of the 16 Mini Cooper S's, um, he not only won the race, but he ran the Skyline uh, four-wheel drive uh, cars. Um, Bruce McPhee, who later won the race. Harry Firth, who... Who'd won the race, actually the second one in a Falcon in 61 at Phillip Island. John French, who won the race with uh, Dick Johnson later. Barry Seaton, who'd won it the previous year. He came in and drove a Cooper S. Frank Matic. Now, imagine this. Imagine getting a driver of the caliber of Frank Matic, who became one of the, the best single-seater and sports car driver drivers in the world, was offered a Formula One drive with Lotus. And, you know, he just turns up for a drive in a production car at Bathurst in 1966. Ron Hodgson had a great dealership and uh, raced Jaguars very successfully. Paddy Hopkirk was teamed with Brian Foley. But, you know, then there were other people in other cars. In a Chrysler Valiant, Digby Cook, who took pole position in the Monaro a few years later. Max Stewart in a Triumph 2000, again, a great single-seater driver. Kevin Bartlett, John Harvey, the late John Harvey, died just recently. Kevin Bartlett living up in uh, Queensland in a Volvo 122. <laughs> Bill Buckle became an enormous Toyota dealer. He was in the Toyota Crown. <laughs> a Speedway driver that worked for him as a salesman, Lou Marshall, he drove, used to drive at Sydney Showground. Now, this was interesting too. Doug Chiver's father and son. So Doug Sr. had driven a C-type Jaguar and a D-type and uh, he drove for the Holden dealer team later. His son became a great builder and developer of uh, motorcycle sidecars, but they shared a Cooper at Bathurst in 1966. Barry Ferguson, who was second to Peter Brock in the 79 Repco Round Australia trial, he was in an Isuzu Ballette. Peter Williamson was in a Corona, a Toyota Corona. Now, he was one of the first who shone in uh, Salikas, and I think the first guy to have an in-car camera, if I remember correctly, at Bathurst in about, oh, I'm sure I'll be wrong, in the year 66, 67, something like that. John Smith was a great single-seater driver. He drove a Morris Mini Deluxe. Warren Weldon drove for many years at Bathurst in a Steely Baker Lark, but he also later raced 125, uh, bikes at Bathurst. Doug Stewart raced to Prince Skyline. Now, he was a, a great rally driver and uh, also um, ran a Mitsubishi's uh, rally team in Australia. And uh, then there was Jill Ignite Jack Murray, who'd won the 
54 round Australia trial in 1948 Ford. And he was with Bill Burns in a Fiat 850. So you had this cross-section of drivers all out to have a fun weekend, you know. The whole attitude was different. The public loved it. And imagine, you know, you want to widen your audience, David, don't you? Hmm. Now, with 23 different models there, there's 23 different groups of people want, wanting to know how the Fiat's going or how the Studebaker or the Prince Skyline or whatever, you know. Nowadays, there's two two brands and, and there'll be two models of which very few people in the country will own one. You know, it's to me, you're sort of diminishing your audience, but I don't know what you think. Well, it was a time of adventure rather than just dollars. It was. And that really brings us to uh, Rano Altonen and our good friend Bob Holden. Now, you talked about Australians who were practical and down-to-earth. Bob Holden was the quintessential example of that. Rano Altonen, he was an international rally driver and that. Did you meet him when he came out here? I did. I met Rano on a number of occasions. In fact, later... I and a few other motoring journos were taught by Rano out anti-terrorist driving. And he, he showed us how and then got us to do it too, that we've gone down a dead-end alleyway and we're being chased by the pistol-wheeling nasties behind us, right? And it's a dead end. And he showed us how to do um, a flying turn, 180-degree turn, uh, in your own length. And uh, I can remember doing it at Oran Park, uh, instructed by uh, Mr. Altonen. Absolutely. He was a good lad. He was very, look, like people in those days. He was very accessible. He came out here. He did the Southern Cross Rally. Uh, he drove at Bathurst. Um, he liked it here. Uh, we liked him, along with Paddy Hopkirk and uh, Timo Mackinnon. Um, Evan Green told me when they were leaving... Sandown, and I think it was 65, not 66, that they were, they were in several minis, probably Morris 850s or something. And I think it might have been Timo, the very large and, uh, uh, and semi-crazy uh, Finn in one of the cars. <laughs> they're in a group of cars, and he took out the ignition key and threw out the window while they're driving in Melbourne traffic. So Paddy Hopkirk's driving the car. But suddenly, it's got no ignition, no engine. He's out in the traffic lane, <laughs> and the key, the key's somewhere behind them on on the road. <laughs> They're crazy guys. Well, again, and this is another another one on a slightly more serious note. When they ran at Sandown, uh, a round of the world sports car championship. Porsche brought out their team of very serious cars. Uh, I think they were the Porsche 917s, and they had massive turning circles on them. Alan Hamilton's father, who'd brought Porsche to Australia, was the first Porsche imported distributor outside Europe because he'd run into Ferdinand Porsche testing a prototype in the Alps somewhere in about 1948, and met him at an inn overnight and said, gee, I'd like those cars for Australia. You know, we're finding out what what Porsche was planning. 
for these sporting developments of the Volkswagen, the first car under his own name, um, said, uh, gee, I'd like them for Australia. So, and this happened, you see. And so later, his son, Alan, um, had the brand here and, uh, and was passionate about them and loved them. And he had a workshop reasonably close to Sandown. So naturally, they took this Porsche team of three cars to the workshop, and then Alan was getting ready to load them back onto the transports to take them literally the two or three kilometres to the Sandown circuit for Saturday for practice and qualifying. And the Germans looked at him and said, why, the circuit is just down the road, you know, what are you doing? So they sent a car ahead to block the traffic at, at some traffic lights where they needed to do a U-turn. And they actually, the turning circle was so enormous on these things, it, had, it was a three-point turn. So these three completely unregistered race cars covered in Rothman's livery and Porsche and all the colours and race numbers and everything, barking exhausts and the whole works, come down to these traffic lights try to do the turn, can't do it, reverse, and then come round, and they go into the circuit, you see. So the Victorian police, as enthusiastic as ever, think, right oh, we'll be on to this. And they sit there for hours and hours and hours, waiting for the cars to come back. And the minute that the German team heard the police had gone, back the cars went on the road to the workshop. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Holden tells the story he went in the Tasman race and in Tasmania he was in the garage next to Sir Jack Brabham and they both drove their open wheelers to the circuit on the, the public roads. It was a time of less rigorous but, not, no, but certainly not malicious in any way. Well, this is the thing, David. I mean, OK, it's against the rule, but, I mean, the primary idea of the rule is safety. And if it's done intelligently, quickly, unobtrusively, uh, and safely, what's the problem? There was a garage at Ashfield where a single-seater car used to go out occasionally and just sort of go up the road and then come back into the garage, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. would anybody worry about Jack Brabham tootling down the road at 25, 30 miles an hour and quickly driving into the circuit? I mean, what's the problem? What is the essential safety problem about it? And there isn't one, you know. Bob Holden has a great story that it was through Evan Green, I believe, that Bob uh, was, uh, well, really got the drive because Evan and he had rallied together and Bob uh, took the car and blueprinted it. Was that something that uh, was known at the time or did that come out later? I think it came out later. Bob, um, from his experience with the car the previous year, um, was well aware of what it could and couldn't do. He came ninth the previous year in the Cooper S with Greg Cusack. And uh, so uh, blueprinting, you know, to make sure that the Conrods all matched in weight and the valves and they had uh, everything to optimum size, weight, matching weights and so on and uh, yes he'd, he'd always told me that with a guy called Alan Kemp 
who looked after apprentices at BMC at the factory in Sydney. Um, and they had a workshop there too where road test cars and competition cars were prepared. Um, and uh, Bob went along there and uh, did long hours in getting the, the optimum-sized conrods, pistons, valves, etc., to make sure that everything was beautifully balanced in his car and it was a, ultimately a sweeter car than the others uh, entered and prepared by the factory. And indeed, you see, people like Glenn Seaton, I remember him uh, talking when uh, Son of Bo that won in 65 in the GT500 Cortina, Glenn in a, in a Falcon GT, and he, he had his own theory on running the cars in. And uh, he used to want to do the first 500 miles just spinning the engine re relatively freely, not loading it too heavily, uh, but then getting really stuck into it from about 500 miles on. He said it used more oil, but it was a sweeter engine with more power, freer, revved better than uh, an engine that had been mollycoddled all the way through its development because all the rough bits had been knocked off it and uh, <laughs> it was ready to do um, 500 miles of hard work, which I might say Bob Morris, I remember, now, this was in the days when a Falcon GT was about four and a half thousand pounds. And I remember him telling me his insurance premium for the weekend to insure that road car, essentially, because some of them were driven to Bathurst. Um, the insurance premium for that weekend was half the price of the car. It was over two thousand pounds. <laughs> You can imagine it didn't get insured. <laughs> <laughs> BMC had three cars, three official cars in yeah. that. The one that Bob Holden had within the rules had balanced and machined to the legal limits, but very precisely that one. But uh, the others didn't do nearly as well. I think eighth was John French and Steve Harvey. And uh, the other one, Paddy Hopkirk, didn't finish. That's right. Did Rano ever talk about how sweet the car was? How how much he enjoyed? You know, he felt that it was a solid car. No, he just sort of done that, and in a sense, for Rano, who was, you know, an international driver and busier with rallying than with racing, really. Yeah. Um, you know, to him, it was just another job and a job done and a job done well uh, by Bob Holden. But Bob was the the premier guy behind it, who'd planned it all and made it happen, and was at the guts of it. So, no, I didn't hear any sort of details from yeah. from Rano about that. But uh, uh, I'm sure when he got in it and saw that the times they were doing and so on, that he was very impressed. Again, with those Cooper S's, and, you know, back in those days, a small car would do what, David? 40-odd miles per gallon. Um, and, uh, you know, a thirsty car would might do... 12, 15 miles per gallon. I remember Evan saying the Cooper S's racing around Bathurst were 12, 13 miles per gallon car. Mm. <laughs> the 1275cc car, you know, that was spending most of its life um, in the top, uh, the top 10, 15% of its rev range. You know, it was just uh, being flogged. They were throwing them around, weren't they? I looked at some old videos. Oh my word. I shouldn't confess this, but, but I have to. And I can remember I lived in an area where 
we had some nice windy roads as a young kid. And every so often when my stepfather brought home a demonstrator from, from what he was selling, and it was something interesting like a Cooper S, I'd invent a reason for, oh, Dad, could I borrow the car, please, you see? And I'd get into the Cooper S, and I can remember quite clearly, some S-bends near my place, and you went up there, it was within, I might say, my place, my parents' place. You went up there going too fast, you got off uh, off the throttle, as you turned in, the backside went out, and then you planted your foot, and you had the, thing, you had the tail out, <laughs> and you went through there with the front wheels scrabbling, going like blazers, you know. And, uh, oh, yeah, they look, they were an absolute delight to drive on the throttle. As I say, arrive at the corner too quickly and get on the brakes and uh, get the, the bit of steering work as well, and you could get the tail out and have them oversteering, beautifully set up in standard, absolutely standard form. They were terrific. And, uh, and it sounds silly to say it, but they were actually quite safe because they were quite easy to drive. They were on quite good tyres. Back in those days, again, as you'd remembered, the cross-ply tyres were horrific. Hmm. But they had Dunlop, it's just come to me, I think, I think they were SP41s. Yep. And instead of that very square edge, you remember the, the treads used to be quite flat and square edged, and these were nice and rounded at the edges. They were a little bit wider. They, I think they were a five-and-a-half-inch wide wheel or tyre. And uh, but with a nice rounded edge to them that sort of got you around to the sidewall and things, and uh, in that sense alone, they were way ahead of a lot of the rubber that was on a lot of the cars back in those days, you know. And again, David, you had wonderful visibility, plenty of glass. Why is it on modern cars that they're reluctant to put lots of glass in so that you can? Can see out, can't see out of the car so well. And Evan Green, a great gentleman, and of course you eventually went and worked with BMC, didn't you? Evan was very strong in getting that team and helping promote and put that team together or encouraging that. He, he, he played a big role in that 1966. All of that, all of that. He was essentially the team manager, and uh, he, he had... Look, wonderful enthusiasm for promoting and marketing the brand. He used to go around to car clubs and tell them what they'd been doing and rallying and all sorts of things. And he reckoned the best way to promote the cars was to get them out on the road doing something in a rally, in a race or whatever. And uh, through his own rallying, he developed these contacts. He was widely liked and respected. And um, yes, he, he was behind all of that. And as you say later, uh, both worked with him there, but also, and he, he being my boss, but also um, uh, commentated with him at Bathurst. Um, so he, he was a wonderful guy. He was just a really lovely guy, great, very charming, very knowledgeable. He had an enormous map of the world behind him in the offices at BMC. And you could go in and talk to Evan about almost anything, David, but within about two minutes, He'd have turned the swivel chair around 180 degrees and he'd say, now we could go there and then we could drive over to there and uh, <laughs> then go around. And he'd have another project in mind. And he did all these things, you know. He drove east to west in Australia from the 
the most westerly point to the most easterly point. He did seven days of driving north-south from Alice Springs to Darwin at whatever speed the Morris 1500s could do. Um, he got all sorts of projects going. I remember the film he took of around uh, Central Australia and uh, Uluru, Ayers Rock, and he happened to be there when it was raining. And they had these Austin 1800s. In fact, I think they had the fleet. I think they had many Austin uh, 1100, Morris 1100 and Austin 1800. And the water was about a metre deep around around Ayers Rock, around Uluru. And it was pouring down off the rock and it was all, it all looked purple. It was the most wonderful footage. And even kept doing all these things that publicised the car and made people enthusiastic, got car clubs together. And then, of course, and one shouldn't forget this, that there was that wonderful film that came out, the um, uh, the Italian job that featured the minis making the Alfa Romeo, police Alfa Romeos look silly. <laughs> you know, and again, that was a wonderful promotion for mini. Evan was very much almost a polymath, wasn't he? That he he wasn't just a a rev head or a you know hard and fast. As you say, he had a picture of the world. He he had a vision and he had a politeness in how he dealt with people. Oh yes, absolutely. He um, well look, he was a top photographer. He was a top broadcaster when he was in Melbourne with a radio program. He actually won an award and had to go to the United States to get the award. He was a Channel 7 commentator. He was great. He could stand up in front of cameras and do anything as well as any TV professional. He was a great author. He was a very, very good driver, rally driver and so on. He's a great promoter, marketer, salesman, PR man. You know, as you say, could do almost anything and uh, and a delight to be with at any time. Hmm. And to learn from too, you know. I was a, a small little lad and was a, a part of a service crew for him one time. Ah. And he came and thanked everyone, and I was standing in the back, and he, he bowed. You know, he didn't know who I was, and but, but you know, he made sure that he covered everybody. I thought that was good. Really? Yeah. You said that you were with him on Channel 7. Two people, you know, or two or more people commentating is you can't do it unless there's a respect an appreciation of the other person, really, can you? That that really needs character to do, you know, a number of people presenting. Is that a fair reflection? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I admired the guy. Um, I loved working with him. I loved, as I say, learning from him. Mm. I learned all the time. Every time you met him, you did something. You learned something, you know. And, uh, no, he was just an absolute delight to work with. Um, I can remember we were doing an opening at Bathurst once. Um, now, this would have was a little bit later. It would have been about Monaro time, 67 or 68. And there was a three-dimensional map of the circuit. And back in those days, the pit lane was nothing more than a pile of um, wooden sort of benches uh, with paint marked out on the ground as to which... Uh, crew, you know, was meant to stop in what spot, but there was no fence between that and the racetrack. And there behind there were almost like little sort of stables or something, you know, a very modest sort of an area. So anyway, this three-dimensional map of the circuit uh, was meant to be sitting on uh, the pit counter 
near where Evan was doing the opening. In his sweet way, you know, morning, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Mount Panorama and all of this stuff. And the short of it was that there was meant to be a Monaro there that was going to be prank started with the camera tight on the exhaust and the engine was going to turn over and and burst into light, probably a little bit of smoke and so on, and it had been widened out the camera to look at Evan and so on, and he'd start his address. Three minutes to air, and where's the Monaro? Two minutes to air, the Monaro's not here. Forget the Monaro, Evan, 60 seconds. So he goes, he goes without the Monaro, and he's again sweet as though it was all planned and everything. And then a spare camera, David, so we've failed with what was planned for the opening. There's a spare camera, and there's, there's almost nothing to look at. You know, Evan's standing there with me, and, and a fairly bare-looking, <laughs> needing a bit of paint, old wooden uh, counter, pit counter, you see. And there was meant to be the, this three-dimensional Mount Panorama back, uh, map. Um, so the, another camera goes looking for that. All they found, the only thing on the the pit counter was an empty chocolate-flavored milk carton. It was the, the, that had failed to arrive. <laughs> so Evan Green, uh, we got to a commercial break, and I was sent across to the commentary box so that when Evan came across, there'd be somebody there on another microphone in case something went bung or whatever. And, and again, back in those days, think of this. This was a national telecast that went on continuously for the race length. It drew an enormous audience. It was a massive thing for Channel 7. Much bigger proportion of the audience than they ever get now, partially because there are only four channels. And we are sitting each on a single seat either side of one television monitor, a black and white television monitor. There's no scoring system. There's a little bit of canvas above us and so on. And we're just sitting there, as I say, in separate chairs, about half a metre apart. So I'm sitting there, and we get to another commercial break. Evan's thrown from the uh, the Bathurst thing to the commercials, and he's come across the track. And uh, he, as he's come up the stairs, as I say, this guy who never swore, and he came up to me, and he said, uh, remind me to do such and such to such and such when I next see him, because he was the guy that was meant to have got the Monaro there, got the three-dimensional circuit map and everything. He was a guy that you'd know. <laughs> He's no longer with us, but he said, remind me to do something to him. <laughs> and I, I thought, boy, this has really got through to Evan, because I've never heard him talk like that before. It's <laughs> a bit like hearing the Pope swear, was it? Absolutely. And, I mean, it was just... It was lovely because what went to air, people would never, ever have known. No. And, uh, but but it, it cut through to Evan in the, in the sense of somebody said they were going to do something, they hadn't done it, <laughs> and he was a tad disappointed, you know, <laughs> probably, because, probably because he'd sold the thing to the producers and said, oh, no, this will happen and this will happen, and, and, you know, to some extent his reputation was probably resting on it, you know. Commentating like that, you would have to be imaginative, not not fanciful, but certainly imaginative in your descriptions that you didn't have 25 camera angles to do it. Was 
was a need for an, an eloquence there that uh, perhaps has been lost with modern technology? You had some things on your side. A, the race had four classes, so really you had five races to talk about. You had a race in each class, and then you had the outright race. So there was always something happening somewhere. You didn't have to, co- to, to concentrate just on what's going on between these two or three cars. Curiously, and you correctly mentioned, there were only a small number of cameras. Well, I can remember, you know, we had 25 or something one year, and that was seen as monumental. But equally, I can remember one year when it rained like Billio, and they had sections of cable, and they were all joined. They all had, you know, nice big complex joins, and water was getting into all of these joins. And at one stage, the Bathurst telecast was down to one camera at the bottom. It was the only one that was still working, and they had run out of cable. They had no more dry cable to replace the wet cables that were causing cameras to fail. Anyway, here's one thing. Uh, in, in some ways, the ability of cameras today to get in so tight, to look in the window of the car at the driver doing something and so on, I think goes against what sometimes we'd like to see, because in those days, you'd see cars come over the skyline, whew, off to the right and round to the left and then down through the dipper, and you'd see bunches of cars, and it, the camera would hold. And you'd see different lines for different cars, different attitudes in the cars, different speeds and so on, whereas today, they don't pull back. They get in tight all the time because the cameras can get in so tight. But here's the other thing that is the big advantage today, is lap scoring. Now, again, in my... I did 11 bassists for Channel 7, 65 to 75, and I can remember going along to somewhere in Redfern one, t- one year and we were going to have some computer lap scoring. We were going to get around the human way of doing it and I'll come back to the human way shortly. And I remember going to see these people and talking to them and telling them how it would work and, and, and in a sense, the 50 or 60 cars they were going to have to get them through once every, you know, two minutes and if you dropped, you got one missing, the whole thing was stuffed. It was gone. You know, it wasn't recoverable. Anyway, that, and, and that didn't work. You know, that, that just was a sideline and it was a, essentially a failure, but it was a little walk off into uh, the, uh, the way things ultimately would go and, and ultimately were just wonderful. But I can remember back in the, in the 65, 66 days, we had the official lap scoring system, which was the ARDC, the organizing club. And that was the race result. And that was usually about two laps behind what was happening. So every so often you get a piece of paper rushed up to you by somebody from the control tower and would give you the race order allegedly. But it was, as I say, it was a couple of laps old. So you had to keep all this sort of stuff in your head, you know. It wasn't up there on a the screen and changing and giving you a lap time immediately. You're doing your own lap timing with a stopwatch. But then, in this particular year, well, Channel 7 used also to do its own lap scoring. So as each car went past, somebody would say, number 47, number 13, number 12, uh, 6, number 2, 
and they'd write them down on a chart and then read them off the chart and so on. So you had the official chart, had Channel 7 that was trying to do it faster and adjacent to where we were sitting to commentate. And then you had teams doing it because often at the end of the race, there was an argument about, no, no, you missed the, the, the lap time when that bloke um, came into the pits or you missed his pit stop and we were ahead of him and all the rest. And they used to have these arguments at the end of the race, you know, do a recount and all this stuff. But I can remember on one occasion, David, imagine trying to tell the story of this. We checked with the official lap scorer, the Channel 7 lap scorer, and the BMC team lap scorer. And I'm not joking, every one of them had a different race leader. <laughs> so you, you work out what as a commentator you're going to say. <laughs> I mean, dead set, that's the way things were in those days, truly. Will, does that make calling an American election seem a piece of cake? <laughs> well asked, well asked indeed. <laughs> oh, Your point about taking different lines, if you watched the 1966 coverage, there's a YouTube 17-minute summary of that, there were just such wonderful different angles, whereas the modern technology, as you say, tends to show all or nothing. If there's a crash, it shows that. Or if it's a leading, they follow the one car. It was wonderful. Wasn't it Norm Beachy who said, it was said of him that he took a corner on a 17-lap race, he took a corner 17 different ways and called every one of them right? <laughs> well, and of course... Different cars handled differently. You had yes. front-wheel drive, you had rear-wheel drive, you had big cars, small cars, heavy cars, well-tired cars, badly-tired cars, good drivers, bad drivers, all the rest of it. So all sorts of things were happening, which it gave commentators something to talk about, you know, and something to interest the viewer as they watched. And that they could relate to everyday driving. Absolutely. In the, car, in the cars that were being used, not... It was telling them a story about the car that they might have or that they might be thinking of having, you know. Yeah. I mean, many uh, certainly sales went mad, you know, with all these successes. And, of course, Paddy Hopkirk won the Monte Carlo Rally in a Mini. And I can remember when Minis were, and again, Evan was behind this, and Minis were, were running in things like the Southern Cross Rally and so on. And they had sump guards on because they had minimal ground clearance. In the still of the night, you'd go, and they used to run the rally all through the night, which, again, was another charming part of things, that they'd bolt on this whole band of bright lights across the front of the car, and they'd blast all through the night, and you'd sometimes you'd park your car a kilometre from where you were going to spectate, and over in the distance, suddenly, you'd see lights flashing in the air, a little bit of light, and it's gone, and it's come again. And then you'd start to hear the, the engines and the gears, and they'd be straight-cut gears. And they were whining. Then you'd hear the minis coming and you'd crash as the sump guard hit the ground and crash again and again. And they used to wear out the sump guards. Mm. They had to replace the sump guards on the rally minis. And on one occasion, Timo Mackinnon got new front tyres and they had studded tyres. This was for the, the ice and snow events in Sweden and places at the beginning of the year. And after 10 miles, he wanted a new set of tyres because he'd torn the studs out of what he had. <laughs> there was also a time a great flexibility. When you consider the rally drivers, and Ralno 
was one who was a rally driver and was said to have perfected left foot braking and then steps into yeah. onto a circuit that he doesn't has never seen before or never been at before and races a mini around there for seven hours or so along with a co-driver, Bob Holden, and wins the race. I mean, the versatility and the concentration of that is staggering. All of that. And again, you know, you've got things now like Formula One where you're locked up, you're not allowed to do anything else. And go back to Jim Clark, who getting a Lotus Cortina into a 10-lap race at Silverstone or Brands Hatch or somewhere just for the fun of helping Ford, but also just having a steer, you know. Whereas the drivers today just are locked up and to concentrate in one particular area. You know, you look at the late Sir Jack Brabham, and he drove sports cars, he drove Formula 2, he drove Grand Prix cars, he drove later at Bathurst, but he'd earlier driven it at Bathurst. And in fact, he had entered on a motorbike at Bathurst, although he didn't actually finally run at Bathurst on a motorbike, but he had entered to ride a motorbike at Bathurst. And, uh, you know, these people drove all sorts of things through a year, as you're saying, of, of people like Paddy Hopkirk, Rano Alton, and so And they loved it. They loved the versatility. They loved the variety. They loved the challenge of seeing how well I can go in this. <laughs> and in a sense, of flogging the thing to death. I mean, they had no respect for the vehicles at all. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the retirement, the retirement race of these things, which was pretty ominous, you know, because... I think Altonans failed to finish 43% of the rallies he was in. I don't think that was necessarily a bad driver. It was the case that he was pushing a little car, particularly the Minis, against Porsches and pushing them to beyond their limits. Well, it's a little bit of that, but it was also the fact that there was a, an attitude in Europe that you had to show how quick you were. It didn't matter if ultimately if you went off, as long as you'd won a stage and shown that you were quicker than anybody else at one stage. And I, again, I can remember my great friend and, and uh, co-worker Evan Green telling me Lancia in pre-season testing had written off their entire team of cars. The drivers had crashed all of them and they had to rebuild and start again. The European attitude was... Uh, was very much, oh, I was super quick. Yeah, I, I, I crashed and was out on stage three, but, you know, by gee, I was quick until then. <laughs> and in fact, Tommy Mackinnon, no relation to Timo Mackinnon, Tommy Mackinnon was one of the first who came along and had a high finishing rate. And again, David, you know, people talk of, oh, he was the greatest driver and things. Hang on a moment. Check Sebastian Loeb. Sebastian Loeb was... I forget whether it's eight or nine times World Rally Champion. If you look up, he has won something like 780 special stages. Now, how do you compare that with Lewis Hamilton doing nothing more in a year than 20-odd Formula One Grand Prix that can't run over two hours? The Dakar's just been won by Kevin Benavides on a, on a Honda, and his running time in on a Honda bike for the prologue and 12 stages was 47 hours. Now, a Grand Prix car isn't allowed to go more than two hours. So that's 23 Grand Prix done in a fortnight <laughs> on a bike. <laughs> you know, I mean, people don't understand. You're a great fan of Dakar and Toby. You've followed him and 
and don't think that he gets the attention in Australia he deserves? Oh, there's no question of it. He's pretty much the class of the field. Now, I say that cautiously because, you know, he's won twice, and this is the second time he's gone out. He's done seven Dakars. He had, until this one, he'd finished first on his first, sorry, he'd finished third on his first ever Dakar, which is almost unknown. He wasn't in a factory team. He wasn't in a factory team still the next year. He was sponsored by KTM America, and he won the blessed thing. He's been in the top three every time he's finished. This time he had a big crash and and was out. The previous crash that he'd had, um, he got to a control point and uh, said to them, how am I going? You know, those guys in front. And they said, ah, oh, you've lost time. You know, you You've lost three minutes or whatever it was. He thought, oh, gee, you better get going. So he got going and uh, crashed and broke his leg. And in fact, he was given the wrong information. He'd gained time on them. Uh, in this event, he was a minute and six seconds from the ra- rally lead. <clears throat> and he was in that section where you win the event, uh, the Dakar, the last four stages. He was His bike was in good shape. Uh, he was good and fit, um, and just for some reason, he's gone off, whether it was a rock that he didn't see or whatever it was. Nobody knows. He doesn't know. He, he was knocked out, and he doesn't know what happened. But, uh, um, you know, he was in a winning position. There's no question of that. Kevin Benavides that won the event. I've been watching through the event, and Benavides sometimes would pull a little bit of time on him, and sometimes uh, Price would get it back. But they were always close together. And when it really got down to the crunch, uh, Toby Price could match Benavides' time and or better him. And uh, as I say, he's pretty much the class of the field, I think. Will, the thing that amazes me is navigating it as well. You're not sitting there with everything monitored around you and, and getting advice or what have you. No. You're not only about the car... But you're not even getting advice about the direction to take. I'm staggered. And they not—they were only given the directions once upon a time. They'd been given them overnight. And they used to go through with highlighter pens and big roll of literally of sort of toilet paper uh, in front of them that they keep having to scroll through in their instrument section. And uh, uh, now, though, they were only given the instructions 20 minutes before they set off on the stage, so they couldn't prepare for it at all in terms of highlighting. And as they said, uh, sometimes picking up errors and things that the organisers would um, uh, would change and, and rectify before they started the stage. Uh, now, there was a, a wonderful guy called Andy Caldercott um, who'd come third in the Dakar um, and... Uh, was again a top driver and he'd a top rider and he'd been penalized for speeding through a town and a little while later he was coming out of a town there was literally one tree on a fairly straight section of road and the short of it was he hit the tree and he died he's from Keith in South Australia and the feeling was that and this relates back to what you're talking about about navigation that he was so concentrated on not getting penalised again for speeding in a town or an area where the speed was limited, that he was concentrating too much on his instruments instead of on the road ahead. But that's what they, as you say, David, 
that madly is what they have to do. They have to find their way. And there, there wouldn't be, well, it goes for a lot of the car drivers too, but certainly goes for the motorbike riders. It would not be a rider who'd finished this Dakar, and 63 of them did, who didn't get lost at some stage, miss a turn or whatever. In fact, uh, there was a guy, uh, Johan Bereda bought a Spaniard. Now, compare this with Toby Price. Toby Price, seven Dakars, two non-finishers, top th- two wins, and three third places. Johan Bereda bought. Oh, and he's won, he's won 30, 13 special stages. Johan Bereda bought has won 27 special stages, has never finished higher than fifth in the event, um, has retired uh, from three of the last four events, and in this last one, he'd had a crash and they, they later took him away for a, a medical check so that his head mightn't have been right because he missed a control point that would have got him to a refuel point. And he missed the, com- the refuel completely and ultimately ran out of fuel more or less in the middle of nowhere. And um, so, you know, this is the sort of madness of this event, the challenge to the riders on in it. And, uh, you know, look at Price, not just in terms of Dakar, in terms of the Fink Desert race. He's won it something like six times. Hatar is another off-road race in Victoria. Very, very quick and challenging with an enormous field of top motorbike riders. He's won that seven times. You know, he's just won lots of other things as well. He's been the world off-road uh, rally champion. Um, you know, it's not just Dakar. And uh, I just wish that he was being paid more money. He, you know, if he could get... 10% of what some of the Formula One drivers are getting, he'd be a long way ahead of what he's getting and still not being overpaid for what he does because physically it's massively demanding um, and mentally uh, just, you know, the pressure and ultimately the danger of it. As he said this time, he said, oh, well, finally I've broken the 30th bone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a good lad. And as they say, when he first arrived at Dakar, they thought, blimey, this bloke looks like a rugby forward. He's he's pretty tall. He's about 1.85 or something, and 95 kilos. Much bigger than a lot of those guys, but a big, muscly, very fit guy, you know, and uh, and a really good guy, too. Born, or his father was running a place in Hilston in New South Wales, and there a whole pile of Hilston residents were still backing him up, and... Uh, during this Dakar and with the Facebook posts that were on about him too. So he's still got loyal followers from his absolute youth. Will, a fine person, loyalty, there, there are characteristics that I think you bring out that are much more than just a bit of financial backing or, or even just mechanical sense. It is the epitome of character which has really made motor racing such an enjoyable sport to you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, riders pulled up. They could see that Toby Price was uh, was in trouble when he'd crashed. In fact, he was probably at that st- stage unconscious. Uh, he was in a riverbed and several riders pulled up, uh, as he'd done the previous year mm. to Paolo Goncalves. And in fact, it was the year to the day that Goncalves died. And Toby Price was the first and knew him and was a friend of his was the first to the accident, 
and was the last to leave. And he said, I wanted to be the last to leave. And he was there for an hour and 20 minutes. And yet he still, he got a lot of the time back, but he was still uh, came home in third place and he was wearing a helmet to remember his great mate when he crashed in this one. But as you say, other riders stopped to help him. Um, Toby Price had been offered, incidentally, uh, a ride with the Honda team for more money than he was getting at KTM. And he said, thank you. And KTM wouldn't match the money. But he stayed with KTM. He liked the team and he liked the people and he liked the way they'd given him early opportunity and it had worked for him. So he was going to stay with them. Again, Daniel Ricciardo, a lot of people wouldn't know that, um, you know, they talk of where should he drive and, and so on. He was offered a drive with the Mercedes-Benz team in Formula One. But what he was offered was that Hamilton wanted to do all the driving and none of the PR work. And Daniel was going to have to do all of the PR work and things. And he said, no, I want to, I want to share it and I want to concentrate on the driving. But I want to be able to do my absolute best in the driving side of it because that's what I'm employed to do, not to be, you know, mm. Mr. Liaison Man. And so he didn't accept that offer. But um, again, um, there are Aussies who over the years have been great pioneers, you know, who've led car companies, motorbike companies, tyre companies, and so on, onto their first victories, you know. Um, uh, we've had some great pioneers, and as you say, it's the friendship, but it's the respect, David. Yes. And it, among these Dakar guys particularly, it's the respect. If you're quick, but it, it, it goes to in, in motorbike racing, road racing, I think there's much more respect there between the riders than there is in Formula One between the drivers because uh, it's not animosity, but um, they recognize that the car and the team is a much bigger part of the overall performance, the overall speed of the, the car-driver combination than it is on a bike, on a on a road circuit, or in something like the Dakar. They say of Formula One, though, that if you disparage or beat your co your, your, your other drive, your other teammate, that's a badge of honour. Oh, absolutely. If you were to help your teammate, you would be considered weak, that you were there to, to justify your own existence more than in any way encourage others. I think we're turning motor racing in some ways into world championship wrestling well yes and people keep saying oh but it's a show and it's it's a thing for the public you know and where once it was a way of proving a car or whatever but you know in the in the two drivers in a team thing the easiest way to measure the two drivers <laughs> is to say well they've got the same machinery if that guy guy a keeps being beating guy b he must be a quicker driver but, you know, we had the thing this year of George Russell, who didn't score a point driving for the Williams team in the entire season. He never finished in the top 10 to score one championship point. They put him in Lewis Hamilton's car, and he damn nearly and should have won the Grand Prix. It was only a Mercedes-Benz stuff-up. It was a puncture, but also a pit tyre change stuff-up that lost him the race. Mm. So what you've got to say is that the driver, part of the overall performance, the lap time of the machine, is probably 20% of the thing. 
Um, in fact, while he was driving that car, an engineer came on the radio to to George Russell driving a Grand Prix car, and he said, "Oh, George," he said, uh, uh, "Your left front suspension is being overstressed in turn eight. Just take a slightly different line or ease off on the speed a little bit, please, because it's carrying on also to turn nine. And then they said the same thing to Valtteri Bottas. Now, nobody says that to a driver or a rider in the Dakar. <laughs> nobody says that to a motorbike racer. And uh, nobody said that to Jack Brabham. When, when in Jack's day, you could destroy the clutch, you could break the gearbox, you could over-rev the engine and so on. Nowadays, you can't overstress the mechanicals. There's a, a mini mountain of people monitoring, monitoring it all. There's a whole swag of electronics that stop you from wrecking the thing. So all you've got to do is steer it, get the lines right, look after the tyres and the tyre temperatures. And I'm not suggesting that this doesn't take some skill. It does. But what I'm saying is that um, there'd be a number of people in the only car that the fastest car, almost irrespective of who's in it, in Formula One at the moment, is the Mercedes-Benz. There's no other car that can match its speed. Three-tenths of a second a lap is is what Mercedes has got over any other car in the field, more over a lot of them, um, no matter what the, the race circuit. So put any one of six or seven or eight drivers in that Mercedes, and they could win a Grand Prix. Now, that's not so for somebody on Toby Price's KTM or in Jack Brabham's VT19 in 1966 or whatever, or indeed in a Mini Cooper around Bathurst in 1965 or 66. You know, that was, in those days, it was the driver, how he handled the bit of equipment that he had. And uh, that was what determined, yes, it might have been a better car or bike than the other ones, but uh, a good driver could or rider could often lift the performance of the other things. Nowadays, the performance of the vehicle is more controlled by the electronics than by the driver or rider. Well, you've maintained and reported and given us that history of motor racing at a time when it did have such character, and and they, they, those memories should live on. I thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, David. Thank you. I've, in, I've enjoyed it once, once you let me loose and I couldn't be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> Apologise that I've gone on for too long. No, 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 no. It's, it's, I keep it all. Overdrive is a radio and podcast program featuring road tests, interviews and features on motoring and transport. More information is available at drivenmedia.com.au and podcasts on Spotify or iTunes.